welcome to uh, tonight's public, public lecture. Uh, thanks very much for coming to the LSE. I think this should be a fantastic evening. Um, I'm Mike Savage. I'm head of the Department of Sociology at the London School of Economics. I'm also co-director of the LSE's International Inequalities Institute. Um, and I'm really delighted to welcome Helen Pearson to talk about her book, which is doing so well, if you read all the reviews, on the Life Project. It should be a fantastic evening. I do want to say how pleased I am to be sharing this event, because I can think of at least four reasons why it's very appropriate for Helen to be speaking tonight at the LSE. Um, the first of these is that the LSE was central to the development of the cohort studies, particularly the 46th one, and indeed the Population Investigation Committee, which was the underpinning of the first uh, of the cohort studies, uh, was based at the LSE, and it still carries on today. Um, it publishes a journal called Population Studies right down to the present day. So um, it's very fitting, I think, that we should be here. Um, I should also say I feel a certain affinity. I am I'm currently the Martin White Professor of Sociology at the LSE. One of my predecessors was David Glass, who was also involved in the cohort studies 50 or 60 years ago, very eminent demographer and sociologist. And so there's a kind of affinity between the cohort studies um, and the Department of Sociology. I can also say, speaking as someone very interested in social inequality and uh, social class divisions, that I have become familiar with these studies over many, many years. They are the kind of bread and butter of much sociology. It's, you, know, you get so used to using these things that it's fantastic to have someone looking at them in a sense, giving an overview about how they developed and what they mean. So it's been very interesting to see how these resources can be widely used. And the final... Uh, link I will make to my own particular research interest is the fact that I have a long-standing interest in the development of social science methods and we need to do more on the historical development of the battery of methods which have become so important don't really realise I think the last 50 or 60 years have seen the proliferation and elaboration of such an amazing variety of methods, the cohort studies are amongst the most amazing studies in the world, British research was leading the way so it should be a, a fantastic occasion today Helen is, um, works for Nature. She's a science writer. And she's been telling me about how she's been doing this project in her spare time out of fascination with the cohort studies. I'm sure she'll talk about that in a minute. And she plans to talk for about 45 minutes and there should be plenty of time for discussion afterwards. And then I think there will be a book signing as well. So with no more ado, I'll welcome Helen Pearson. Thanks very much for inviting me to talk here today, and thank you very much for coming to listen. Um, so it's really a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you. Now, um, as Mike said, uh, my book is about a remarkable series of studies that have tracked generations of children growing up in Britain over the last 70 years, and what they have taught us about why we walk different paths in life. So why are some people successful on some measure, and why some people struggle much more? And today I want to tell you a little bit about these studies, um, how they started, um, what they've shown us, and how they've really touched all of our lives. And I'm also going to talk a little bit later about how I came across these studies and why they inspired me to write this book. So I think my main message today is that remarkable things happen when you do something as simple as track people through their lives, and I hope I can convince you of that. 
And first, I'm just going to introduce you to the studies, um, give you a flavour of what they are and really how they got started. And the best way to do that is just to take you right back to the very beginning of this story. So this really all starts um, before the war, when there were concerns that women in Britain weren't having enough babies. Uh, the birth rate in Britain had been gradually falling, and a lot of people became worried that if it kept falling, then there just wouldn't be enough people to sustain and rule the British Empire. And some academics actually warned that if we didn't have more babies, then the British would go extinct. So there was a lot of discussion about this, and eventually it was decided that the best way to find out why women weren't having babies was to go out and talk to them. So to do this, um, shortly after the war, a charming young doctor called James Douglas launched a huge maternity survey. And this is James Douglas. Um, he was based at LSE at the time. Uh, it's looking very dashing here. Um, so the aim of this study he launched was to interview all of the women who gave birth in one week in England, Scotland and Wales. Now, if you think about it, that study sounds enormously ambitious to the point of almost being implausible. So no one had ever attempted to collect quite such detailed information on such a large group of mothers and babies before. And if we tried to do it today and interview all of the mothers who gave birth in one week, it would cost millions of pounds and involve endless emails and committees and so on and so on. But Douglas actually pulled it off more or less on his own with the help of David Glass, I will say you mentioned, um, with more or less a kind of stiff upper lip and a kind of post-war can-do panache. Um, he just wrote these terribly polite letters to all of the health authorities in the country asking if they would possibly mind sending health visitors out to talk to all of these women. Um, and his chosen week was in March 1946, which is um, exactly 70 years ago this month. And amazingly, everyone said, yes, we'll do it. So the health visitors went out to visit the mothers and almost all the mothers agreed to take part. Uh, so eventually this survey reached nearly 14,000 women and well over 90% of the women who'd given birth in that week. And that was partly because everyone was used to doing their bit during the war. Um, so if someone turned up on your doorstep saying, would you sign up uh, to this huge maternity survey, um, then the mother said yes. And this is a picture of one such mother from the time holding her baby who was born in that week. His name's David Ward, and I'll come on to some of his life a bit later on. So one thing I really love about this story is that even though this was actually a survey all about fertility and why women weren't having babies, that none of the mothers were asked anything about sex or contraception. And that was just because it was considered completely taboo at the time. Um, but it was really fascinating, and it is fascinating, to look back at the questions on the, the very original questionnaires that these women were asked um, and this is one of those questionnaires. You won't be able to read the questions, but just to give you an idea of what it looks like. Um, and I'll tell you some of the questions because they really speak to their moment in time. So they ask things like, were you able to get your full extra ration of a pint of milk a day? Who looked after your husband while you were in bed with this baby? <laughs> How many days after the birth were you able to do a full day's work around the house? How much did you spend on vests, petticoats, booties, bonnets, shawls, knickers and rubber sheets for baby? And how much did you spend on smocks, corsets, nightdresses, knickers and brassieres for yourself? Now those questions may sound a bit dated now, but they actually turned out to be really important and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But James Douglas collected up all these thousands of paper questionnaires from around the country and um, crunched the results and published a book within a couple of years. Now by the time those results came out, the original questions about um, fertility had completely evaporated because the baby boom was taking off and children were being born at a very rapid rate. So this first survey accidentally captured the very first members of the baby boom. 
So the original aim of this study um, to understand why women weren't having babies had become moot. But instead, the results ended up having an impact in a very different way. So when they emerged, they really shocked the country because they revealed that there were great inequalities in the way that women were giving birth. So they showed that working-class mothers were receiving much worse medical care during their pregnancy and birth than those in the middle and upper classes, and that their babies were 70% more likely to be born dead. And the obvious reason for this was that the, the poor women just couldn't afford the health care because this was before the days of the NHS. So you mostly got the care you could pay for, and if you couldn't afford it, then you went without. Now, those questions I mentioned about how much women spent on corsets and bras and so on, they also turned out to be important because the study revealed how much it actually cost to have a baby in 1946. And it doesn't seem surprising to me that it costs an absolute arm and leg to have a baby once you've bought all of the the cots and the prams and the paraphernalia and so on. But back then, no one had really added this up in any detail. And it turns out it was costing families a small fortune to have a baby back then as well. In fact, the the well-to-do families were spending about £47 on average, which doesn't sound much, but of course was, um, and the working-class families were spending about half that. And this was important because it also showed, again, that it was much um, harder for uh, working-class families to afford the costs of having children. And so, again, that exposed some of the inequalities in society at the time. Now... Despite all these rather depressing messages about um, the class divide from this survey, the results actually emerged at just the right time because it was just as the NHS was being put together. So the findings were discussed in uh, policy and political circles and they fed into the foundations of the NHS and were used as something of a blueprint for the new maternity surveys on the NHS. And when it launched in 1948, uh, the medical care associated with pregnancy and birth became free. And around that time, too, more generous maternity benefits were introduced. So the survey really helped to create this lasting belief that pregnant women deserved support from the state, which over time has grown into the maternity leave and benefits that parents still have today. So although asking all those mothers after the war how much they spent on knickers and bras and corsets seems a bit odd, it actually proved an important thing to do because it exposed these inequalities in society um, and helped shape the NHS. Now, on a personal note, this was really interesting to me because as I was researching and writing this book, I became pregnant and had my third son. Um, The other two had been born in the States, so he was my first on the NHS. And it was a really kind of wonderful story loop for me to realise that the medical care and benefits that I was receiving um, were actually in some ways down to the very study that I was writing about. Okay, so that still explains how this very first study got going, um, and hopefully it also shows you that collecting rather odd-sounding information can end up being really scientifically valuable. And now I want to just explain briefly how this unlikely-sounding, over-ambitious maternity survey um, was just the start of a much bigger uh, story, and how it grew into this much more important project. So so after this first survey, um, Douglas and other scientists decided that they would continue to follow these children on into their lives and collect data on them as they went. But because they didn't have the computing power then to follow all of them, all of the 14,000, they whittled down the numbers to just over 5,000 children. And they've been following these people ever since and collecting reams of information about their health, their development, their, their jobs, their income, and much, much more. And some people like to know, well, how was all this data collected? Well, when the children were young, um, it was collected by health visitors again, going back to their homes and talking to the mothers and filling in questionnaires, much like this one. And then later, when the children were at school, teachers and nurses collected much of this information for the scientists. 
And people who are in the study have very distinct memories of being called out of class and to go to the headmaster's office and to fill in these questions or to have certain tests done. And they actually remember feeling very special for being singled out in that way. And then later, as adults, the study members have continued to be sent questionnaires over time, um, and also sometimes nurses have gone to their homes to um, ask them to complete various medical tests, so to take measures of their blood pressure and their lung capacity and so on. And all that information gathering has now added up to something very special indeed. So the people in that first study, the ones born in 1946, turned 70 earlier this month. And there were two big birthday parties to celebrate, uh, one in London and one in Manchester, uh, which perhaps you might have seen on the news. And that study has become unique, so it's become the longest-running major study of human development in the world. And it's also known as the longest continuously studied birth cohort in the world. And a birth cohort just means a group of people who were born at around the same time. But um, this study is still just actually the start of the story. So it was so successful that scientists did follow-on studies. They started ones that were very similar. So um, they started following thousands of children who were born in 1958. They did it again in 1970. They started following thousands born in the 1990s. And then they started a fifth cohort study at the turn of the millennium to follow many more thousand children. So now... Altogether, there are 70,000 people who've been enrolled in these studies spanning these five generations. And no other country in the world is following generations of people in quite this way and on quite this scale. So the whole thing's become very unusual, and some people call it a jewel in the crown of British science. But I actually found in my research that, um, aside from the many scientists who work on these studies, remarkably few people have necessarily heard of them, and their story had not really been pieced together before for a wider audience. Um, And that's what I tried to do in this book, and I ended up calling it one of Britain's best-kept secrets. So, um, to give you a sense of the scope of these studies and the amount of time that they've spanned, I want to talk for a moment about the data that's been collected over time and how incredibly broad-ranging it is. And one way to give you a flavour of that is just to, again, look at the questionnaires and just pick out some of the questions that have been asked over the decades. And that's something I did for the book. Um, I scattered some of the questions throughout it. Now, the questions that scientists ask tend to change over time. And I think it's a bit like watching your own child grow up. So at the beginning, you're really interested in in birth and, and how they're passing their developmental milestones. And then you're interested in how they're doing at school and then what jobs they get and so on. And it's really the same with these studies. So as the children have grown up, the questions that are asked of them change too to reflect the stage they're at. And also the questions tend to reflect how society has changed and how the interests of scientists have changed too. So I've just picked out a few of my favourites. And um, this is David Ward again, the little baby I showed you earlier, now looking like an amazingly cute little boy. Um, And so in the 1946 cohort, which he was a member of, uh, when the children were young like this, their mothers were asked questions such as, has the child any bad habits such as thumb-sucking, nail-biting, nose-picking, tics, or general fidgetiness? Has the child ever had discharge of pus from his ears? How often does the child receive a laxative purge? And this, and then as they went on, this is David Ward again, now getting married in his 20s. Um, So when they were young adults, obviously the questions had changed again to reflect more about their lives as they were growing up and settling down. Um, So now they were being asked things like, are you now single, married, widowed, separated or divorced? Do you have an indoor lavatory? That was still being asked in 1972. Have you done anything that made you perspire in the last four weeks? (laughs) 
do, do you usually bring up any phlegm first thing in the morning? Um, and here we are, here's David again uh, with his own children, um, because obviously you know, the, the questions have continued to change over time to reflect their families and their jobs and so on. But, um, but all those questions I just told you were um, asked of the cohort born in 1946. So what about the later generations? Now, if we look now at the cohort born in 1970, they were being asked very different things. So, for example, when that cohort uh, were adolescents in 1986, they were asked questions just that, to me, speak beautifully to what it's like to be a teenager. And two of my favourites are, how intelligible is the teenager's speech? And by now, um, unlike at the start, after the war, it was okay to talk about sex. So this group were asked, please tell us how you feel about having sex. Tick one of the following. I have done it once. I have done it several times. I wish I had done it. I expect I shall do it soon. And finally, my parents would be horrified at the idea. So, so now let's jump forward again to the, to the fourth cohort. So this is, um, these are the ones born in the 1990s, and they were teenagers in the 2000s. And the questions had changed again, asking things that no one would have dreamed of asking in 1946. So, for example, have you ever tried the following? Cocaine, crack, amphetamines, inhalants, sedatives, hallucinogens, opioids, other. And, of course, do you use Facebook, Twitter, instant messaging, blogs, other? Questions, obviously, that would never have occurred to anyone to ask in 1946. So, so that's just a tiny selection of the huge range of questions that the cohort members have been asked. And all those questionnaires are also just one part of the information that's been collected. There have been lots and lots of other measures, too. Um, the cohort that was born in the 1990s really stands out. So they're the ones um, that are in their 20s today. And when that cohort was started, scientists were becoming very interested in understanding how our genes are important in health and disease. So there was a lot of interest in collecting DNA and also in collecting other body tissues in case they would be useful in future studies of health. Now, the scientists who were starting that cohort, the, the 1990s one, they really went to town when it came to collecting tissues They've got a huge collection of them now, um, and a lot of it is kept in a basement in Bristol, which I had the good fortune to visit as I was researching my book. So they have boxes full of thousands of baby teeth there that they've collected from the children. Um, They have boxes stuffed with thousands of locks of hair, uh, fingernail clippings, freezers packed with urine samples and blood samples. They've got many slices of umbilical cords, which look like this. And um, perhaps the most remarkable thing to me that they've collected is 9,000 placentas from the birth, which are preserved in buckets in a secure storage shed on the outskirts of Bristol, um, which they haven't quite worked out what to do with yet. So um, I want to just mention one other type of data that's been collected, um, partly because it just allows me to mention one of my favourite anecdotes in the book, um, as well as illustrating this very broad range of data that's been collected. So if we now jump forward to the cohort... um, that was born at the turn of the millennium. Um, by that time, childhood obesity was becoming a really big issue. And so scientists have done a lot of work on that cohort to understand body weight and how active these children are. And as part of this, when the children were seven, they asked all the children to wear accelerometers, uh, which are basically electronic fitness trackers, the type that many people now wear on their wrists, but at that time they, they wore them around their waists. So they asked these children to wear them for a week and then post them back to the scientists. And the children absolutely loved it, uh, they loved wearing them, and they got 10,000 of these accelerometers back but then they had to work out how to make sense of all of these these 
physical activity traces to work out how active these children had actually been. And unfortunately, and perhaps unsurprisingly, they found that many children today are not as physically active um, as we might like them to be. But sometimes it proved actually very difficult to work out whether a child had been very, very still or whether they'd taken the activity uh, monitor off. And um, there was one case where a child had a very peculiar pattern of activity and the scientists couldn't really work it out. And when the researchers sent someone out to visit this family, the child confessed that he'd actually taken off the accelerometer and strapped it to the family dog. (laughs) So... I wanted to tell you that story, not just because it's funny, but also because it gives you some um, sense of just this vast range of data that's been collected from all of these people over the years. Um, So it's been thousands of questionnaires, um, terabytes worth of of digital data, a shed full of placentas, freezers full of tissues, and activity traces and much, much more. And it's really quite staggering and an incredible resource for scientists today. So, So that leads me on quite nicely to what these data have actually been used for and what they've shown. Now, I've already told you about one key finding, which was about feeding into the foundations of the NHS and improving maternity care. Um, Another story I found really interesting is around smoking in pregnancy, and I'll just go back to my timeline here. Um, So this one I find interesting because um, when the first survey was done back in 1946, it seems kind of remarkable to think that no one thought to ask these women whether they smoked. And that's because it just wasn't considered to be an issue. At that time, um, soldiers were being encouraged to smoke for their health. Um, But when the second cohort was being launched in 1958, the women were asked about smoking. And that was thanks to a remarkable character called Neville Butler, who founded the second cohort study. And like James Douglas, who I showed you earlier, who founded the 1946, Butler is actually part of this sort of cast of eccentric English men and women who ran these studies over the years and have battled to keep them alive. And really, my book revolves a lot around those characters. So so Butler is a huge figure in the book. He was this larger-than-life character. He was known for speeding around in his VW Beetle uh, with a large suitcase spilling over with academic papers and underpants and giving passionate talks about the cohort studies and trying to muster support for them. And he was also known for being late. Uh, And in this case, um, he was was late and in in getting this question of smoking into the questionnaires. So the story goes that he raced in at the last minute and said, stop everything, I simply must add a question about smoking in pregnancy. And that's because he had seen one of the very earliest studies coming out in the literature suggesting there could be a link between smoking in pregnancy and bad outcomes for the children. So the questionnaires were duly called back from the printers and the question was added. Now, even then, the information was put on the shelf for many years. Um, It wasn't until later, in the 1970s, when really um, a big debate was starting up about whether smoking in pregnancy um, could could cause bad outcomes for children. And even in the 1970s, actually, some 40% of women smoked in pregnancy. And there was a big debate going on about that. Now... um, What this study had, the 1958 cohort had, was uh, that that other studies didn't, was a very large amount of information now on on large numbers of women, whether they'd smoked, and also whether or not their children had tragically been born dead or had died in the first few weeks of life. And when they crunched those numbers, they were able to show convincingly that the women who smoked during pregnancy tended to have babies who were of lower birth weight, and that this increased um, the risks of infant mortality even when they took into account many confounding factors such as social class and um, how many uh, children the the woman had already had. 
So they published a very convincing paper about this in the British Medical Journal in 1972, and at that stage, many doctors and scientists were finally convinced of this link. And it really helped change public health advice. And this is one of the posters that went up pretty much as a direct consequence of that study. It was considered very risque at the time, as you can tell. Um, um, so really, you know, that advice has been saving lives ever since. And I think that's another really good example of how these studies have gone on to touch our lives. And it also helps show the power of following people over time because what the scientists could then do was follow those children who'd been born, obviously the ones who had survived, who'd been born to mothers who smoked. And they found very interesting things in that they found that smoking seemed to have very long-lasting effects. So these children who'd been born to mothers who'd smoked during pregnancy um, have tended to be shorter on average um, to perform less well on educational tests. And then as adults, they were also more likely to have fewer educational qualifications and to be obese. So it's another example of, of the power of following people over time and how these um, studies have perhaps established health advice that we just take for granted today. Now, there were, there were many, many other examples. Um, the results have been incredibly prolific. Uh, I estimated in my book that probably about 6,000 or more academic papers have come from these studies, and so I can really only give you a taster today. Um, they fed into policies around pregnancy, birth, education, parenting, social mobility, health, ageing, and more. And I'm happy to answer questions a bit more about that later on. But as I said, I just wanted to give you a taster. So now I'm actually going to jump forward in time and explain briefly how I came across these studies some 65 years after the first cohort had started and decided to write this book. I, I did consider putting this at the beginning of my talk, but I actually wanted to give you some flavour of the, the scope of these studies before I entered the picture. So I might just go back to the timeline here. Um, okay, so how did I come across these studies? So it was about five years ago. Um, it was at the end of 2010. Um, I was actually living in New York at the time, and I was, as Mike said, um, working as a journalist and an editor for the science journal Nature, which is what I still do today. Um, so I run the features section for Nature where we report and write long stories about science. And I was really interested in finding good stories um, that we could write about, particularly ones that combine science and people. And I, I was loosely aware that there were studies, um, many around the world actually, that followed people through their lives. And I was pretty much Googling around on them. And I stumbled on the website of the 1946 birth cohort. And I thought, well, this sounds curious. Some crazy scientists have been following thousands of British babies born in one week after the war. But I was certainly interested, and I wanted to find out more, so I arranged to talk to Diana Koo, who's the current director of the study, on the phone. And we talked for about an hour, um, and by the time I put down the phone, I was really sold. She'd managed to cram pretty much the entire history of this study, uh, from its start as a study of maternity after the war right up to the present day, um, into that phone call. And at that time, the study members were about to turn 65, which was obviously a major milestone for them and also a major milestone for this study. And she said to me, it's the best study in the world, in my view. And that really convinced me that I should write about it. So, so what happened next was I ended up writing a feature story about that cohort for Nature. That was in 2011, March 2011. Um, and the story was sort of particularly interesting to me personally because it was also as I was reporting that that I moved back to the UK. I'd been in New York for eight years and so it felt a bit like writing about this cohort um, allowed me to kind of rediscover my own country in a way um, and my own history. 
And, and at that time, uh, the scientists were also about to throw a series of birthday parties for the cohort members. And I was able to go to the one that was in London, so this was their 65th birthday, um, and meet some of the people in that study. Now, one important thing about um, these studies, which, which I haven't said, is that the identity of people in them is confidential, so the scientists can't reveal who is in them, as this would compromise their privacy. And this also meant that at that time, most of the cohort members had never met another person who was in the cohort. And the scientists had never held an event that would bring them all together like this. So this was quite a big deal. And um, the scientists were actually a bit nervous about whether to have this party for the 65-year-olds. Um, and, and the truth was that one scientist told me he was a bit worried that if they had this party, that some of them might get drunk and get off with each other. Um, <laughs> And if that happened, that was a problem because that would mean they kind of messed up their life course and that was a bit like tampering with their own experiment. Um, and, and I also know, I found out later, that the cohort members were a bit worried about going to this 65th birthday party because they thought that if a bunch of scientists were organising a party, it was going to be really boring. And also, it's funded by the Medical Research Council, which is a government funding body, and so they thought, well, the MRC is likely to be really stingy with the wine, like, you know, one glass and, and that was it. So it wasn't looking good for the party, um, but in the end, I can tell you, it all turned out okay. In fact, it was actually a really wonderful experience, because it's really remarkable to be in a room with a group of people who all share a birthday week. You know, they all talked about rationing, and they all talked about how terrible the, the diets of their grandchildren were, um, and it seemed to me that everyone had a good time, and I can tell you there was definitely enough wine. I can't say if anyone got off with each other. You never know. So I, I was in the audience at this party, and they were all singing happy birthday to each other, and it was really there that I realised that this was such a remarkable group of people um, and such a brilliant story that someone really ought to write a book about them. And, in fact, I found it hard to believe that someone hadn't already written this book. And so after that, I slowly started researching this book, um, and in the five years since then, I've really spent almost every scrap of my spare time learning about these studies and writing about them, and it's been the most amazing journey to do this. The, the massive challenge, in a way, for me as a writer was how to turn the, this huge amount of information into a story that I hoped people would want to read, because really you could easily write several books about each of these studies on their own. It's, it's almost overwhelming when you begin to think about it. So in the end, I, I approached it in the way that I know, which is as a reporter, as a journalist, I'm used to interviewing people. And really that's what I did here. Um, I've interviewed a lot of people. I found scientists who work on the studies now, who worked on them in the past, people who knew the, the um, past cohort leaders. Um, and I, I basically stopped counting the number of interviews I did when I got to about 150. And, and I was also able to um, talk to just a few cohort members um, about their lives, and I put that into the book as well. So, so I ended up structuring the book actually around this kind of remarkable backstory um, of how these studies got going, as I described, and also these scientists like James Douglas and Neville Butler that I mentioned who battled to keep these things alive. And it's actually quite a dramatic story, and also a peculiarly um, British story with its origins after the war and all those questions about corsets and bras and no sex and so on. Um, and, and I also discovered in my research that this whole enterprise was really being run on a wing and a prayer most of the time, and that there were many times when these studies were on the verge of collapse. And that was often just because the scientists weren't sure if they could get the political, financial or scientific support to, to keep these studies going. 
And, and very often they went to remarkable lengths, actually, to keep them going. So, for example, one considered mortgaging his own house. Um, another story goes that, that one of the study leaders in the 1980s actually gate-crashed a party where Mrs. Thatcher was there, where she was going to be speaking, and then managed to um, spill coffee on her legs just in order to get her attention um, and raise the fact that his study really needed more funding. And, and there are just many, many more stories like that. So, so I ended up thinking, um, as I researched it, that these British birth cohorts are really like the national institution that we don't know that we have, in that they're, they're quirky, they've sometimes been run on the cheap, they're sort of fraying at the seams, perhaps we take them for granted, but enormously valuable nevertheless. Okay, so, so that's how I got into the book, how I sort of structured it and approached the writing of it, and... Um, I want to tell you just about one more major theme that emerged as I I researched it. And sometimes this has come out because I've been asked, well, what's the the single biggest finding uh, from these studies over the years? And I suppose I would say it's this, that, that early life really matters in shaping the rest of our lives. And the most obvious example of that is that all of these studies have shown that children who were born into disadvantage have tended to follow much uh, more difficult life trajectories. So they have been more likely to struggle in school, more likely to suffer poorer health, um, and even to earn less later on. And that was true of children born in 1946, and it's true of children who were born at the turn of the millennium as well. So the cohorts have really shown that the circumstances we're born into seem to have this profound influence on the rest of our lives. And the 1946 cohort is still pulling out really remarkable connections, actually, between the social class of these babies born 70 years ago and outcomes decades down the line. So showing, for example, that children born into the lowest social classes have been more likely to to die by now and are also much more likely to suffer many, many chronic diseases, which, which the group are now experiencing. But um, I'm actually going to talk more about how these studies have kind of struck a note of optimism within that by showing that not everyone born in difficult circumstances ends up in them. So many people escape from, from that start. And to illustrate that, I want to talk about one study in particular that I really love um, that sort of encapsulates that optimistic message. And I liked it so much that I put it at the very front of the book in the prologue. So um, in this study... Oh, sorry, let's go on. Here we go. Uh, So in this study, uh, scientists identified children who were born in the 1958 cohort, the second cohort, uh, the ones who were born in really the most difficult circumstances of all. So they only qualified if their families had a low income and they they were born into cramped homes or ones without running hot water and they had family difficulties such as having one parent at home or five or more children. And scientists quickly saw that these children were starting to follow more difficult life courses. So they were more likely to have been born premature, they were more likely to have been in care, they were more likely to have been ill. And the scientists had even given these children a a quite depressing label. So they suggested that these children were born to fail. And in the 1970s, uh, they published quite a famous book on these children, which is shown here, called Born to Fail, with a question mark, Um, And many people who uh, studied teaching or social work actually still remember this book um, as being part of their course reading. But then uh, the scientists flipped this question around, and rather than asking who did fail, they asked, okay, who was born to fail but succeeded instead? And to find that out, they followed up the children in the 1980s when they were in their 20s, and they identified those who had done well 
so that meant they had got particularly good educational qualifications, they had landed a good job, or they had done well enough to buy their own house. And this study was led by a young researcher called Doria Pilling, who I interviewed for, for the book. And she went around the country visiting all these people who had had a very difficult start, but they'd managed to beat the odds and escape from disadvantage. And she wanted to, to interview them to find out how they'd done it, what was their secret to success, if you like. So after this huge research project, interviewing all these people, um, and also going back to all the data that had been collected on these people over their lives, uh, she, she boiled it down really to, to four key factors. And the first was parents. So the children who had had interested, engaged parents, parents who were ambitious for their futures, were more likely to have escaped from this difficult start. The second factor was schools. So having, again, an interested, engaged, ambitious school behind a child, um, that meant that they were more likely or was, was associated with children being more likely to escape from disadvantage. The third was location. So the children who had escaped, who'd done well, were more likely to just live in a region where there were jobs. Without jobs, there was nowhere for these kids to go to. And the fourth factor was motivation. So the children who were motivated to escape from this difficult start were more likely to do so. But interestingly, she found that motivation alone was not enough. So without these other factors to support them, um, they were unable to, to escape this difficult start. And all this was published in a book in the 1990s called Escape from Disadvantage, uh, which no one paid much attention to at the time. Um, but I really wanted to put it in the book because some scientists now say to me that they really think it was one of the most powerful and positive findings that have emerged from these studies. It doesn't negate this idea that disadvantage at birth does, on average, have an important influence on how the rest of life plays out, but it did show that those born into disadvantage are not destined to fail, and it also pointed to some concrete ways in which a child who had endured a difficult start might go on and prosper and thrive as an adult. Now, that was just one study, but I think a lot of the messages from it have been echoed in later research. So, for example, many studies find, for example, that, that of the children who were born into disadvantage, a proportion generally go on and tend to do very well for themselves. And also this idea that parenting is important in that. Um, that's kind of this, this idea that interested, engaged parents um, seem to go some way towards compensating for a difficult start. That's come across in other studies too. Um, now, you can also see that message um, in people's individual stories. And in the book, I, I mentioned I really wanted to include some stories of people who were in these studies. And I was able to interview just a handful of them, and, and I tried to work them in where I could. And, and some of those speak to this idea that it's possible to escape a difficult start. And um, perhaps my favourite story which I'll, I'll mention to you just as I come towards the end of, of what I wanted to say, um, is about a woman called Patricia Palmer. And she was born in the 1946 cohort. And this is her looking rather lovely as a 16-year-old girl. Um, now, I found... Um, I, I put her story at, at the very beginning of the book, actually, and I found that people who, who read it... Um, find her story really fascinating and actually quite emotional for some people because she did have a very tough start. Um, and, and I'll just tell you a little bit about that. So she, she was born at home in Cheltenham and her family was very poor. Um, her father drank and gambled and sometimes didn't bring home any money at all because he'd already spent it. And then he left home when she was five and, and died shortly afterwards, leaving her mother to get by on her own. Her mother had had five children 
Um, one of them was stillborn, and one of them had died as a child, and Patricia was the fifth. Uh, she was left with very little money, and Patricia remembers being really embarrassed because she wore third-hand clothes and had free school meals. Now, Patricia was bright, uh, but she didn't get into grammar school. She failed her 11+, plus, and there was actually some important work that came from this cohort, from the 1946 cohort, showing that working-class children were far more likely to fail the 11+, plus than the middle and upper-class children. And that's exactly what happened to Patricia. So, on the, actually, she, she told me the story of, of the day she took her 11-plus exam, and her teacher appeared to have written her off, uh, because on the day of the exam, he actually hit her and left her shaking. So it was no surprise to her that she failed the exam. Um, She left school at 16 because her mother couldn't afford to keep her in education, and she still regrets that a lot. But I went to visit uh, Patricia a couple of years ago. Um, She's now a friendly, lovely 70-year-old. This is her with one of her grandchildren. Uh, She's living on the outskirts of Cheltenham, um, and she's very happy with how her life has gone. Uh, She ended up managing the finances of a large school, Uh, she married, she has three children, Uh, she's now busy picking up her grandchildren from school, which makes her very tired. Um, She's going to the gym in the morning to try and stay healthy. And she feels that for her, life turned out okay, uh, partly because of chance, um, and partly because she inherited a strong work ethic from her mother. And she also thinks that because of the time that she was born, just after the war, she could have chosen almost anything she wanted to do. And she actually worries that for her own grandchildren, perhaps the opportunities are less than she had. Now, I wanted to tell you her story for two reasons. One is that it just backs up what I said earlier. Um, It illustrates that life is complicated and malleable, and it is possible for some people to to beat the odds and overcome a difficult start with motivation and support and encouragement and opportunities. And and that's what Patricia managed to do. And I I spoke to people in later generations who'd had an equally tough time at the beginning, but they kind of found their own path to happiness and success in some form or another. And and often, whatever the studies say, there is really no simple explanation for how they got there. They all found their own way. But I, I also wanted to tell you that story because it just reminds us that ultimately these studies are about ordinary people who lead ordinary lives. The cohort studies are absolutely dependent on the goodwill of these people like Patricia and their willingness to take part. None of them are paid to be in it. Um, They all give their time for free. So they really deserve a huge amount of thanks and credit for generously sticking with the study over the years and answering all of these questionnaires and so on. Um, Pretty much all they get in in this cohort um, is a birthday card each year from the scientists. And they do all love getting that, and the scientists are so diligent about it that they tell me it's always the first birthday card to arrive. Um, And this last slide I have here is just um, some of the beautiful birthday cards, actually, that have been sent out over the years by the 1946 cohort, uh, many of which uh, the cohort members often collect them. And and earlier this month, I I went to the 70th birthday party of the 1946 cohort, which was a very special event, just like the 65th, which I described earlier. They're they're really an amazing group of people, um, and it seems remarkable to me that they all seem entirely unruffled that the scientists want to watch them on and on until they die. Uh, They just feel like their mothers signed them up for their study, um, and it's their duty, really, to see it through to the end. And I think that really speaks to how dedicated they are. Um, And without that dedication, these studies wouldn't exist at all. So that actually brings me to the end of um, what I wanted to say in my talk. I I could talk for much longer about 
the, the birth cohorts and how remarkable they are, but I want to stop and leave plenty of time for questions. I, I hope I've convinced you, if you needed convincing, that amazing things happen when we do something as simple as track people through their lives. And I hope I've explained why these studies and their story inspired me to write this book. Um, it's been a real privilege and a pleasure um, to learn and write about these studies. And I'm, I'm really very, very grateful to all of the scientists and the cohort members who patiently talked to me and answered question after question after question as I researched the book. So thank you very much for listening, and I'm very happy to answer questions. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much indeed. Very, very interesting. We have uh, well over half an hour for any questions or comments. Um, so who would like to begin? Over here, yeah. Um, I'm interested, you were saying that the initial cohort was 12,000 of the 1946 group, but um, the follow-up was for 5,000. What were the criteria for reducing it from 12 to 5,000. Right, yeah, it was nearly 14,000 in the original birth week. Um, as much as anything, it was because of, of how the data was being processed. So at the time, there weren't computers, so they were using um, punched cards, which are little cardboard... Um, OK, you're nodding, you know these. <laughs> and tabulating machines, which are these huge uh, clattering devices about the size of a piano. And it was just very, very cumbersome to, to crunch this amount of data. So I think that was a really key factor in deciding to whittle it down to, to, to the 5,000. And I believe that Douglas chose um, about equal numbers in each of the social classes so that it would stay representative and also representative across the country. Um, so that's why. Any more? Yes. You said that one of the studies showed a link between um, smoking uh, and bad outcomes from pregnancy. Was there a similar thing with alcohol? There have been, um, yes. Well, there have been quite a lot of studies which have come from these cohorts. You're talking about consumption of alcohol in pregnancy? Yes. Yes, that, they have definitely looked at that. And, um, in fact, one of the, the cohorts was, was quite... So, so that's actually... A, a lot of studies have been... Um, have come up with, with differing results on that question as to whether moderate alcohol consumption in pregnancy is associated with poor outcomes later on. And... Um, as, as time has gone on, these studies have become more sophisticated, and I think generally that the thought is now that there is a correlation actually with some, for example, with, with childhood IQ, I believe was the most recent one, um, that it, can, it is associated with slightly lower IQ, um, but there are some correlations between consumption of alcohol in pregnancy which have fallen apart actually with time. But the, the general consensus, I would say, from talking to, to scientists, is that it's not a particularly good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Any more? There's one over there. Yep. Uh, some of the factors you mentioned driving social mobility, so like good parents and good school and things like that. I mean, do you think there are lessons that politicians can draw from your book? And if so, what, what would those be? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting in the book to see um, 
which results did end up having a political impact and which didn't. And um, it wasn't always necessarily the most important findings which ended up having an impact. I mean, actually, a big theme I found was that often the ones which did have an impact was just because they landed at just the right time when that was being discussed. So, for example, that initial example I gave of the, you know, the inequality at birth being able to, to land just when the NHS was being put together, you know, perfect, it attracted attention. Um, so, yes, I think there are, there are, I mean, there are many lessons, and uh, also one theme in the book is that once the, this is true throughout science, but once the data is released by, by the scientists, obviously politicians and policymakers can use it how you want, and that comes through in the book. I mean, sometimes the data has been twisted in ways that suits uh, politicians, but isn't necessarily what the scientists were trying to say. You could probably, <laughs> you're nodding. Um, so, yes, I think there are, although the messages are not always as simple as politicians might like them to be. Thank you. There's a question here at the microphone. Uh, could you say something about the very obvious gap around the uh, 1980s? Uh, is it the uh, explanation we would all probably in this room think it is? Well, the, I'm so glad you've asked me this. Um, the, the story of the missing, mysterious 1982 cohort, which I wrote about in, in the book. So there were plans to have the fourth cohort in the series, because um, you notice that there was a 12-year series. Um, so the next one should have been in 1982, and there were plans to have such a cohort, and it was going to be big and ambitious. And there were various reasons I think it went down. Um, some of them are actually just to do with the way that it was planned. It was over-ambitious, actually. Um, it was too much, and, but it was also to do with the uh, climate in which it was being launched. So it was being proposed just as Mrs Thatcher was coming in, and the, the climate for social science was becoming quite frosty. Um, so I think that was probably... All of the cohorts actually reached this kind of interesting crisis point around 1979, um, when they were all sort of hanging by a thread, and it wasn't clear if they were going to continue. And that 1982 cohort died... Um, but the other ones just about held on. And, it, and history repeated itself. There's lots of history repeating itself in the book um, mm. because there have been plans. Um, there were plans and there was launched a, a huge cohort study that actually launched last year. Uh, so there was going to be a sixth one in the series um, which was going to track... It was going to be the biggest and track 80,000 children being born into the modern world and it launched last January and it was cancelled in October um, and there's quite a lot of controversy about why that happened. Um, I mean, one answer is that it's much harder to get mothers to sign up to these types of studies. It's not like after the war when everyone did their bit for the country, right? Um, you know, women are, are more reluctant to, to take time from busy lives to uh, be in these studies. Um, but there is also a sense that there was a loss of, of funding and, and support, and it's not completely clear why. Lots of hands going up. There's stuff some over, some over here. Yeah, up there. Hi. Um, yeah, I just thought it would be interesting to know um, whether the, how success was defined was largely a result of the scientists or whether the participants had a role in like how they defined what success was. And then if you had any reflections on what was interesting about what came out about how people define success. Are you, oh, can't see you. Are you talking specifically about that escape from disadvantage study I talked about, or, or just more generally? I mean, I, I suppose. I mean, I said at the beginning that these studies have have shown 
what makes people successful and what people fail. I think that's been measured on many, many different levels. So, in, so each study would, would define its own outcomes. So in the escape from disadvantage study I talked about, they'd very specifically decided what success looked like. You know, it was, it was doing well at school, it was being able to afford your own house, um, having a particular type of job. But, but in other ways, you know, you could say, well, being successful is, is not having... Um, the normal plethora of health disorders by the time you get to 65. Do you, do you see what I mean? So it, I think it really is, is depends on, on the, the particular study. Okay, there's one at the back there. Yeah, hand up. Thanks. I was just interested to know about the attrition rates over the cohorts and whether there are any trends that can be drawn from those across the years. Yeah, um, so I don't have all of those figures off the top of my head, but the attrition is, is quite interesting in that the attrition in the later cohorts is um, much bigger and faster than in the first one. So the first cohort, the 1946 one, is really remarkable because um, when they now send out questionnaires, they, I think the last one they got something like an 85% response rate, which is very high for a study like this. Um, and... I mean, the, the numbers have obviously declined because people die and people do drop out, but that, that one is, is notable for having such dedicated um, cohort members. And I, I know that the one in the 1990s, I think they've only got about 40% of the original uh, cohort who are still taking part. So there definitely is uh, a, a lot of attrition, and I think it, it's uh, become more of an issue over time. Can I just follow that one up before I go back to the audience? I mean, because just to play the devil's advocate about what these what studies might, might miss or might find more problematic. And it links into the point about attrition and that presumably one of the, one of the challenges of attrition might be people born in the cohort who then emigrate and kind of how you would follow those people. So you might be missing one group of migrants but you might also be missing migrants coming in who would be born the same weeks as some of the cohort members but they're not traced and so there'd be, there'd be danger in generalising from the cohort members to the particular population, if you see what I mean. So kind of, I'm wondering how usefully cohort studies are for looking at issues of migration and ethnicity and yeah. diversity. Well, I don't think those early cohorts are, really. I mean, they're, they're not ethnically diverse. I mean, they diverse. And yes, you're right. I mean, they're self-selecting in a way because in some ways the people who are you know, interested and in some senses fit and healthy as well are going to keep taking part, right? So, I mean, I mean but, but you know, I mean, I think they, that there are statistical ways to try and deal with some of those problems as to, and to make the studies representative of the population. Yeah. But I, I think recruiting, um, well, recruiting from, from ethnic and, and get, getting diversity in those studies has obviously become more of a, an issue for scientists over time as the population's changed. Yeah. Um, and that was really a, an issue with the, with the latest cohort was that they were really targeting particular um, groups. They really wanted to actually have more from ethnic minorities. And actually that might have made it more difficult to recruit actually in the end. Okay, okay back out to the audience. Uh, that's one over here, yep. Thanks for an interesting study. Uh, um, I'm wondering, coming back to your issues about dropout and attrition and, and uh, response rates, to what extent do you think, in particular, the 1946 study was really just a product of its time? Um, people were on, on the right side of it at the, at the end of the Second World War. There was a totally different attitude. There was a, perhaps a, a feeling of optimism towards the future. What do you think are the prospects of continuing and developing these kinds of studies into the future? I'm thinking in particular, perhaps, as eventually the 1946 cohort die off, 
do you think there would ever be an opportunity to continue these, to develop them, to get a new generation involved, or do you think maybe they were just a product of the particular post-war period in which they emerged? Well, I, I think the 1946 cohort does very much, it, it is like a snapshot of time, and that is reflected in the attitudes of the people who, who are in it. As I'd said, they're a very special group, they're interested, they, they have this kind of desire to take part, they feel very special, and they haven't dropped out, um, and that is not reflected in groups today. But I don't necessarily think, I, I think cohorts just have to change with the times. So um, perhaps this cohort that I mentioned that was cancelled last year, um, perhaps it was just trying to be a bit too ambitious um, for, for what it wanted to do. And it might just be that we need to find, or, or scientists need to find different ways to do this. And one way, for example, is to just use the enormous databases which now exist. So you can do a kind of cohort on the cheap, which some countries kind of do, which is basically if you register people at birth, you can, I mean, there's so much information collected on us already in, in our NHS records, in our school records, taxes, you know, benefits and so on, that actually if, you, if people will give consent at the start, for that information to be collected, then you can almost follow people over time without actually much effort on your part. And that might be one way that these things need to be done in the future. Okay. Um, there's one on the front here. I'm curious how this information is being used today. So aside from the scientists and those directly involved with the participants, you, of course, who else is taking a look at this information and what are they doing with it today? So, I mean, one, one recent example um, is one thing that, that's starting to be done now much more is to actually compare the cohorts. So often in the past they've sort of been run separately, but now the data can be pooled and we can compare the generations. And, and so one example that I, I sometimes give is understanding obesity, for example. And this was a very recent study just published last year um, where it was possible to just take all of the body weight measurements on all of these different generations and line them up and see how they changed over time. Um, and, and what they actually found was this really interesting way in which uh, sort of obesity had arrived in, in Britain. So if you look at the 1946 cohort, um, none of them were fat as children. I mean, they were all brought up on rationing. Um, and the, the first three cohorts basically all stayed fairly um, slim until the 1980s, and that when you can start to see overweight and obesity increasing. And then if you look at the cohorts that were born after that um, in the early 1990s and at um, the turn of the millennium, childhood obesity had become a really big problem. So I just find that study really fascinating because it was as if you could see this sort of huge change had happened in the 80s. Something changed around us, and, and scientists think that that's perhaps because people were becoming more affluent, they were starting to dry they could afford cars, they could afford to eat out, jobs were becoming more sedentary. But, but I, I think that's a sort of powerful way in which scientists are using data today to understand perhaps, you know, a big issue, that, that a modern issue, and understand its, um, its roots. Well, we'd love to think so, but sorry, the question was, is that being shared with people so that we can, you know, so that schools can introduce healthier foods? I mean, um, it, it's rarely that direct. I mean, all this information, all the studies which are done by scientists are, are published um, in a format which can be uh, accessed and, you know, by, by the public or by policymakers. It doesn't necessarily mean anything will change as a consequence of that, um, but it all helps understand some of the big issues that we face in society, like obesity or inequality or, or, or does that kind of answer your question I mean if I can just give an example just, just, to, just to follow on I mean uh, you look at the newspapers these days there's lots of discussion about social mobility declining it's one of the themes you know social mobility used to be easier in the past most of that actually comes from comparing the cohorts particularly the 58 cohort or the 70 cohort 
and uh, economists and sociologists spent a lot of time looking at the data. So it's interesting. It has seeped into our everyday awareness about a lot of social issues. Any more questions uh, over here? Did you notice, or did they notice, differences in gender in the different cohorts, and did these differences change between the different cohorts? Um, I don't know how much I can speak to that in detail. I mean, obviously, the, that, that has been a theme of work um, from these studies, is understanding, for example, how the roles of, of women have, have changed, and you can see that just in, in looking at you know, how many women were, were working during pregnancy um, or after having children. I mean, the 1946 cohort, it was pretty standard for all of the women to stop. Obviously, that's not the case when you get to the, to the later cohorts. What I really meant was, mm-hmm. would, people think, oh, that, would people looking at the 46 cohort think, oh, that's a difference between the boys and the girls? That was, and then yeah. they would think, oh, that's a different difference between boys and girls, so that this might lead into the nature-nurture debate. Uh, yeah, that, that has been done, for example, looking at educational outcomes. or I mean, a lot of work has been done on, 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 on wages, for example, um, has, has been studied as well. Um, I probably can't give you specific examples at this particular moment, but yes, it has been looked at. What at the frontier, yeah. Um, I was interested in what you said about Patricia and how she feared that perhaps her grandchildren... Um, particularly females, wouldn't have the same opportunities as she had as a young woman. I wondered if you could elaborate that on a bit more. Well, I, I think that the, the 1946 cohort members like Patricia feel that they were born at this very special moment when a lot of changes were being introduced. Um, the welfare state was, was coming in, so um, they were able to have opportunities um, through the NHS to improve their health. Um, the, the, the 11 plus was there, which was designed, even if it didn't always work well, to allow all bright children to progress to, to the best schools. So there was a real ambition at that time um, for to, to sort of eliminate inequalities from, the, from society, even if it wasn't completely successful. And I, I think that she feels, and some people feel, that there isn't the same ambition to um, remove the inequalities that exist today. Um, I mean, she, she was speaking specifically about... I mean, her mother couldn't afford to send her to school so she, to continue her education at the age of 16. And now, you know, she's looking after her grandchildren, aware that they're going to have to pay thousands of pounds, you know, to get them to university. So on a personal level, I think that's what she, she was thinking about. And she felt sad if, if children should be denied the opportunity to have a further education, you know, in 2016, as, as she was, you know, when she was a child. There's one over there in the orange coat, I think. In 1960, uh, there was an appreciable Commonwealth immigration of ethnic minority. I wonder if anybody has done a study, similar sort of study, uh, being undertaken. Do you, you mean to look specifically at immigrant populations? There might be, and I don't know if I can answer your question, um, a longitudinal study, I'm not sure. I do think in the... Ni- you might know this better than I do. Yeah, in the 1958 cohort, I think that they did bring in... They have enrolled people who've arrived in the country right. after... Um, as long as they were born in that week, they may have okay, enrolled so them fine. later. But I, I'm afraid I can't speak to that in any detail. I'm sorry. Right, thank you. Um, uh, one over there, I think, first, yeah. 
Um, how often do they get interviewed? Is it every year or every second year? And my second question are the last two cohorts in 91 and 2000 linked to the OECD education studies, the European-wide studies on education? In terms of how often they are um, interviewed, I think most of them get questionnaires through the post sort of every year to two years, but they have a, a detailed, what's called a detailed sweep, where they might actually go and get detailed medical information. They just haven't got the money to, to do that all the time, um, so that might be only every five years, let's say. Um, and in terms of comparing the data to OECD data, I think that is done in specific um, in specific studies, so for example, some of the work on, on social mobility, that's definitely been done, is, is comparing social mobility in Britain using these cohorts to social mobility measures in other countries. Yep, there's one a bit front here. Uh, thanks for making a very eloquent case, I think, for the benefits of um, longitudinal studies of this kind. Um, I wonder, you raised an interesting question about why no one else has done what you've done before. Can social scientists um, do more than they currently do to sell the very clear benefits of this type of study? Are they at the moment understating the case or not presenting it very well? Or does the, do the reasons for that problem in selling it in terms of long-term funding, does it lie elsewhere? Yeah, that's a really good question. We were talking about this before, weren't we, as we came in? Mm. Um, because I, as, as my background is actually in biomedical science, um, and so it was in, very interesting for me, actually, to be able to interview so many scientists who are from biomedical sciences and social science with, within this. I, I mean, I don't know whether... I, I think, actually, there have been... There are obviously very, very many passionate scientists who work on these studies who have articulated the case for them in, in many, many important ways. Um, it's just that... I approached it as, as a writer and as a, as a story, and so perhaps that was how, you know, that was, that was different. Um, I mean, all scientists are trying to, to sell their work, <laughs> aren't they, to get funding. Um, I mean, I wouldn't like to say that, you know, the whole of social scientists needs to better articulate its, <laughs> its case. Um, it, you know, depends on the scientist. I think we were saying earlier on, too, there's a very interesting story that social scientists aren't very good at doing the popular outreach work about their work. Natural scientists, I think, are better at popular engagement, and there's a lesson to be learned about how it needs someone like Helen to come in and talk about what. what I mean, I mean, done. I suppose perhaps I would say I I found it. Um, yeah, I, I did perhaps find. I don't like to generalise, but sometimes social scientists did seem a bit more cautious about me talking to them and and explaining the studies. Um, but there's also, you know, an understandable concern about anyone writing about these studies because, um, you know, they're, they're just very concerned to protect them, you know. Um, any, any sort of bad publicity about them can turn people away from them, and that's just a disaster because if people don't keep taking part, then, then the studies fall apart. Uh, over there, yep. I think on that point, it's... It's partly because there are lots of bits of people's lives which at the time are thought of as very not particularly interesting scientifically. So a lot of these cohorts, uh, people have been very interested in child development, education, then in their, their fertility patterns and things like that. And like the 46 cohort, everyone's getting very interested again because of ageing and looking at life course. But when some of these groups are in their sort of 40s or something, it's much harder to go and sell it in the grounds that we can collect some information now, which 
might or might not be interesting in 20 years' time. So that's probably quite... I found that all of the cohorts went through a kind of midlife crisis. Um, as, as, so everyone seemed to be always interested in studying children, and then once they moved into this sort of danger period uh, beyond about 18, it, was re- it became unclear. Um, there were always questions asked about why should we keep following these people, and there was a really interesting debate about that for the 1946 one, uh, because this was when uh, James Douglas was retiring and leaving LSE, and there was quite a lot of discussion in, in epidemiology at the time about um, understanding the causes of chronic disease. But chronic diseases like obesity and diabetes tend to strike people who are in their 40s and 50s. So the thought was, why do we want to look at people who are in their 20s and 30s, you know, when they're healthy? And there was a lot of discussion basically saying that these people would only be interesting when they were dead. <laughs> so... Um, you know, it's only really now that we sort of have more of an appreciation that if we can follow people over, across their lives, then you can start to see, for example, indicators of disease emerging very early and understand their, their roots. One here, yes. Has there been any discussion about the implications of only choosing um, children from one week in the year? Is there any kind of seasonal difference that, that has been noticed? So I think that was recognised as actually being a limitation. Um, so the, um, the 1990s study and the 2000 study ab- abandoned that and they followed children who were born over about two years. And, yeah, there's lots of interest in understanding, um, for example, educa- I mean, I, I say this in the book, but, for example, understanding um, the educational differences for children who are born in the summer. That's been studied. Um, and you can only do that, obviously, if you've got children who span a year. So I don't think it's significantly necessarily held back the earlier studies, but by giving up on that, it's allowed other questions to be asked. Okay, one over there, yep. Hi, I wondered if um, within any of the cohorts there'd been any studies of multiple births, so the twins, triplets, and if there'd been a comparison over the years. But also, um, secondly, what, had been, what have you discovered in terms of data collection uh, over the years? Because obviously the methodologies and technology has completely changed and the fact that this is not being done on such a scale with anything else. In terms of multiple births... Um I, all, all I know is that in the very first cohort, interestingly, they were, they were excluded. When they did, you know when I said they, they changed from the 14,000 to the 5,000? So Douglas left them out, and I'm not completely sure. I think he just decided it would somehow complicate the, the, the analysis or something. Um, I think they were included in the later ones, and I, I'm afraid I just don't know enough as to whether there have been specific analyses of, of those groups, or even whether actually there are enough of them to say much about you know, how they, they differ. Um, in terms of the methodology, so you're talking about how the data was sort of collected and, and stored? Yeah, just what, what's, what's, being, what's being learned in terms of um, uh, what's being learned about the collection of data? You mentioned earlier that you're collecting a lot of data, and a lot of this information, they didn't mean a lot of collecting, it's all just sitting there, whereas actually some of the more simple data they collected in 1946 have been able to show a lot more. Has anyone looked actually? Well, oh, yeah, I think methodologies have, have changed enormously. I mean, certainly just the way the data is stored has changed enormously, because at the beginning it was on punch cards, and then it, you know, you can, you, it's a really interesting sort of technology story about how it changed onto um, magnetic tape and floppy disk. And I actually went to um, Essex University, where there's a huge store of um, social sciences data, just to see the, you know, the, the, the huge service, because it's just such an sort of amazing contrast between how it was, was once 
done. Um, but the methodologies have changed enormously and become much more sophisticated just in terms of the, you know, um, the modelling which can be done and, and how you can try and take into account um, confounding factors using statistical models, which just wasn't done at the beginning. So I, I certainly think that that has changed a lot, yes. Okay. Any last questions? There's one here in the front. Two small questions. Um, you'd mentioned that in the 1990s when they had started looking at DNA and they've lots of placentas and baby teeth. Have there been any findings from that? And also the second question is around the role of fathers. Has that been looked at at all? Because I suppose the 1946 when they were really looking at the role of mothers and as time goes on have they kind of incorporated questions on fathers as well? Yes. So, yeah, there's a huge theme of work which has come, uh, probably been led by the 1990s cohort, which has looked at um, identifying. So, so the, the cohort has been used a lot in basically trying to identify genes involved in many disorders. Um, that They were involved, for example, in, in one study which pulled out an early gene correlated with, with obesity. Um, but they're being used in all kinds of different molecular biology studies now, mostly focused on understanding disease, basically. Um, some, some of the samples in the, in the extraordinary library I talked to you about, the tissue library with the placentas and so on, I mean, they haven't actually been used that much because it's almost like we're waiting for the science to catch up. You know, how do you analyse thousands of, of baby teeth? But it's really interesting the way sometimes something is... I found this many times in the book, something was collected, and you think, well, what are you possibly going to do with that? Um, but then years down the line, it's like, well, actually, now we can. Um, and I've immediately forgotten your second question Oh, the role of fathers. No, definitely. Um, so, yeah, at the beginning, all the interviews were being done with the mothers. I think for the first three cohorts, it was mostly interviews with mothers. Um, the 1990s cohort, I'm not sure how much uh, fathers were included at the beginning. No, I think the questionnaires went out to parents. And then as you move on to the millennium, it was all about having fathers from the start. And in the 1990s one, they're now almost recruiting fathers now to kind of make it more of a, a parental, um, yeah, parental survey. So, so definitely there's more of an appreciation of that. Okay. There's one there, yeah. Thank you. Um, so you were talking about the power of people's personal stories to sort of puncture some of the doom and gloom sometimes that this data can convey. Um, and I'm really interested, though, in how, as a researcher, you actually approach those personal stories because there is a tendency amongst people, especially towards later life, to start to bring some sort of sense to their life story and to um, sort of bring that positive, exceptional story to a much wider history of like, uh, like unhappiness. Um, and also your position as a researcher to want to hear some happy stories. Um, and I was just wondering if you could reflect on that and maybe... Yeah, I, I think that's um, really fair. And I certainly, I certainly reflected on that as a, as a writer because obviously the... I mean, first of all, I didn't have access to many cohort members because most of their identities is confidential. So I had a very few to talk to. Or, and, and I'm absolutely aware that the ones who were willing to talk to me are likely to be the ones whose lives have turned out well. Um, so it's not a, a random sample. Um, but I, I worked with what I had, and um, some people, you know, haven't necessarily... Yeah, you're, you're right, people put a spin on their, their lives, <laughs> but I have to accept their stories for, for, for what they are, and I still think that, that um, they, they speak to people. So even if... I mean, there are still some sad stories, I think, in the book, and um, it really helps people, allows people to kind of relate 
to these studies in a way that they wouldn't necessarily be able to, I think, unless you pull those stories out. Yep, over there. There's a longitudinal study going on in Dunedin in New Zealand. Have you been able to compare the studies and the results? So, um, yes, there, there are cohort studies going on all over the world, and Dunedin is a, is a very famous one. Um, I deliberately in the book, I mean, I, decide, I had to decide at the beginning that this is not going to be a book about cohort studies in general because it would be too overwhelming, and I thought the story was really in these amazing studies. Um, so I do mention briefly some of the other studies around the world, but I have not, um, and, I, and more, co- more cohort comparisons are going on. Scientists do these things, um, but I, I did not explore that in the book, no. I just have one final question. I mean, one of the things you bring up a bit in the, in the book is there's quite interesting gender shift. And the early, early people behind the court service were nearly always men, the, the senior people. That, the women did the interviews because they were the health visitors and so on. Whereas in recent decades, it's become very feminised, the people running the court surveys. Why do you think that? Do you have a reason as to why that well, is? Well, no, I just think that's a reflection of, of you know, the, the rise of women generally in, in the workforce and in, in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all, really. And it was just nicely mirrored in the way that the, the cohorts had passed from the hands of men into the hands of women. Okay. Okay, I think that's, that's enough. And I'll just, I'll just to say, I think there's going to be a book signing outside afterwards. So anyone who's... Who, I, I have been reading the book. It's fantastically readable. It's, it tells the story of social science in a very engaging way. I do recommend you, you purchase a copy. It's, 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 it's a terrific thing to read. So please do stay behind for the book signing. And I'm sure you want to thank Helen for coming along and talking about the book today. Thank, thank you. you.